Good to see everybody and welcome to worship. Let me read our meditation. I know it's supposed to be silent many times, but it gives us a chance to just focus. If you have been reading that and praying through that, let me read that as we're coming in this morning. What shall I render unto you, Lord, for all your benefits toward me? What thanks can I render to you again for all the joy I have before you? Lord, you have come on this holy day and at this hour to lift up my soul to your praise and to give unto you the glory that's due your name. Receive, O Lord, the spiritual sacrifice from my soul and be pleased in return to shed on me the grace of your most holy spirit. Let me call us to worship from Psalm 24, 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Seated and welcome this morning. If you're here visiting with us, I'm glad that you're here. I have an opportunity to greet you. Normally, I would come by and shake your hand and, and introduce myself. I'll do that from a distance this morning. Uh, I know on the past trip, the mission team is back, but my wife was one that came in contact and actually got COVID. So I'm keeping my distance this morning. I feel fine. Um, I would love to hug you and rub all over you and rub it off on you, but I'm trying to keep my distance up here this morning. And so afterward, I'll have a mask on, but that's why. Uh, my family's fine, but please pray for Stacy. Pray for others on the mission trip too as well. Uh, there are several the past couple weeks that have contacted and been in contact and actually got COVID. So uh, just be careful. We encourage everybody to do the same thing. Please, if you're not feeling well, uh, we ask you to please take precautions as we go forward because we just never know uh, and we want to be careful with those around us as we go forward. But we are glad to have you. So please fill out a visitor card if you get a chance. There's a blue visitor card. We'd love to have a record of your visit. Uh, it gives us an opportunity to at least contact you, and uh, you can let us know how we can minister to you or help your family uh, in time of need. I also want to say thanks to everyone who's helping with the Sunday school time as we need it during the summer. Thanks for helping fill in if you're still available. What we really need is those last-minute details when something like this happens and we need a, someone to fill in and someone to help teach, and we are not going to take all of August off. I know in the past we've talked about that, but we have several teachers that have said they would like to just continue teaching through the summer. And so and we'll give you an updated plan after the session meets this coming Tuesday. So pray for us. And uh, But if we have those people that are willing to teach, if you're teaching a youth class or one of the kids classes or something and would like to have a break uh, for a time being of the month of August, please let me know. Uh, we do want to give every teacher that's been teaching faithfully a break so that if you want to continue in the fall, you can be refreshed. Um, but since we have classes continuing, we'll do everything we can to go ahead and fill those classes with subs or combine if we need while we're going through the summer. Because we would surely like to keep the Word of God being taught uh, for those who come. So we appreciate those of you who've stepped in to help as well. If you look on the back of your bulletin, you can just flip to the left if you want. It's right there. We have several prayer requests and announcements. Again, we ask that if you want us to pray for you as a church-wide issue, please let us know in the office, and we will be glad to print that. Otherwise, uh, Nick and I, I, I shouldn't say I know his prayer life, but I know he prays for you, and I know I do, um, but we don't share those unless you tell us specifically that you want those in the bulletin. So please let us know if you have that. Um, again, pray for our session meeting this month. We have some things we'll be going over in a good sense. We have some families that are coming to join. We have plans for the summer. We've actually been talking about things for the fall, getting things scheduled. And we'll probably be opening back up nominations for elder and deacon as we meet. So uh, please know and already be in prayer. Um, I say this uh, in a gentle sense. I must have scared a lot of people off since I've been here. Because since we've been here, it's been two and a half years, we haven't had... Uh, any new elders come on yet. So the standards must be high. You must be scared and wonder what's going on. But the truth of it is we're focusing more on our families and on ministry. Um, but we need nominations of men who really feel called uh, and want to help lead out and to pray for our families and to minister to those in need. So uh, be in prayer over the next month or so as we open that up, that if you know somebody who you think would be qualified and called by God, uh, to want to serve people. Uh, we want to be elders. Um, I tell people all the time, the thing that's most important is we are the direction of the church. We're the discipline of the church. We disciple the church. And so we go forward in all these things to help with people. And so our elders are learning that we don't have to be involved in every little thing that goes on. 
but we need to have oversight of the discipline and direction of the people's lives so that we can help them. So be in prayer about that. Deacons are as well needing people to help serve. So if you uh, feel the need to help minister, uh, whether it's through the ministries of our church, the maintenance on our building, the programs that we're doing, uh, helping with all those things, we, we need deacons as well. So be in prayer this summer so that as we come back this fall, we'll have several that we can prepare for training as we go forward. So lots happening this week. Just pray for us as we meet so that we'll have direction and understanding of what God wants for our church as we go forward. Uh, other than that, I'll let you read some of the other announcements that are there. Again, we know we have several families traveling throughout the summer. Always keep them in prayer. Um, we want you to enjoy your summertime, but we're always excited to be able to come and worship and to be together and to find the encouragement that we all need when we can be together to help us through our times that we face together. So we appreciate you being gone and enjoying it, but we look forward to you being back as well. So let me continue uh, as I go to the throne of grace, and uh, I'll lead us in prayer. And if you would join me in the Lord's Prayer, uh, you'll find it printed on the inside of the red hymnal if you need that. But please, let's go to the Lord in prayer uh, here this morning. Heavenly Father, again, forgive us. Lord, as we enter your presence together as your body. Lord, in the frailty and the embarrassment of our sins and our failures, and our forthright disobedience, that, Lord, you would still mercifully and graciously forgive, that through your Son you have accomplished all that was necessary, that there would be no more needed, that we would have complete access into your presence through him at all times, that the Holy Spirit, our comforter, that he is able to, to bring us to you, to draw us near. Lord, I pray this morning for just that, that your Holy Spirit would draw us near, that we would know through your son, Jesus Christ, we can come. We can bring our burdens. We can take on the yoke. We know we can overcome and we can be conquerors all through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, it was through him that the veil was torn and that we were able to come together as a body to pray as you taught us, saying, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. To open our hearts together before the Lord, you'll see. Let me call us to a moment of confession where we can pray together and confess our sins. From Proverbs 28, whoever hides his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. It's when we're able to confess those sins to one another, knowing that we all come to the throne of grace, needing to know his mercy in our lives, that we truly find forgiveness, not just from the Father, but from one another. There's nothing better than when you ask someone to forgive you, that you now place the burdens of the gospel on them. You're done. It's now up to God to work in their hearts to do what God's called them to do. So let's confess together. You'll see it there in our bulletin, if you would. Let's confess our sins together as we pray. Father in heaven, we confess that our hearts do not always bow in true devotion that you are not always present in our thoughts. We confess that your truth does not always shine within us, that our lips do not always sing your praise. Father, we confess our faith needs to be increased, that our sins need to be forgiven, that our hearts need to be circumcised, and our minds need true repentance. Grant these to us, Father, so we can worship in spirit and truth here this place. Amen. And from Psalm 103, again, I remind you that you may have your favorite place that you turn to find God's comfort, comfort, but all throughout Scripture, we find his assurance of pardon. That no one comes to Christ for pardon that gets turned down. Wherever you are this morning, whatever you bring to the Father, he has never said no. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. 
For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Let God remove that guilty feeling that you have and should not have as a child of God. And you may be seated, and as we prepare to confess our faith before we take our offering here this morning, we've been working our way through the Westminster Larger Catechism. And so if you're visiting with us this morning, we encourage you to join along with us as we little by little confess our faith together as revealed to us, not only in the confession of faith, there's those of you who may not know, the confession of faith was broken down into tidbits so that we could learn it. And the larger catechism and the shorter catechism are wonderful ways to teach our children. If you're not sure what a catechism is, sometimes that we think, oh, that's a Catholic thing. Catechism just means the teaching by questions and answers. So we ask the question we want and then we give the right answer. So if you want to catechize your children, you ask them something, and then you expect them to give you back the right answer. And it's no different with Scripture. When we ask the questions, we love it when our children at least have the right answers. They may not always do it. They may not always obey it. But at least we know they have it. So join with me as I read the question. If you'll join with me in reading together the answer that's there in bold print. What are the punishments of sin in this world? The punishments of sin in this world are either inward as blindness of mind, a reprobate sense, strong delusions, hardness of heart, horror of conscience, and vile affections, or outward as the curse of God upon the creatures for our sake, and all other evils that befall us in our bodies, names, estates, relations, and employments together with death itself. You didn't realize what all sin brought, did you? Question 29, what are the punishments of sin in the world to come? The punishments of sin in the world to come are everlasting separation from the comfortable presence of God and most grievous torments in soul and body without intermission in hell fire forever. So many today don't even believe in a hell. And yet it's so important for us to realize the truth of those decisions we make. Let's take a moment. Let me ask the Lord to just bless this offering. Let me say thank you to so many of you who have helped support our church through all that we've been through. Several have asked. Last year I did a chart that kind of showed where we were weekly. I have that together. Uh, Mike keeps up with that for us as a session, but I told some others I would post another chart in the back so that you will see where we are for the year and where we are each month. I know several of you have asked, and so I'll get on that and post that where we are through the year. But thank you for helping us uh, be so faithful to be able to meet the bills, go forward, and do the ministries here at the church. Let's pray. Father, we are so gracious that, Lord, just a portion of what you have blessed us with, that as we give it back, you're able to multiply it in so many ways. Fathers, you could take just a few pieces and turn it into loaves and loaves. As you could take the shortness of the wine and expand it for the masses. Lord, as you have overcome nature to walk on water, heal, cast out demons. Lord, you perform the same miracles as we just honestly trust that as we give back a portion to you, your kingdom expands that missions are done around the world, that churches are started. It's our plan to reach every place, every people group, so that, Lord, we too know that as we look, as John did above the thrones of heaven, that we would see from every nation and every tribe, every tongue, because of our faithfulness to you. Lord, we know you don't need our money, but you want to see our obedience. You want to see our trust in you, not in our own worldly provision. Father, I humbly pray this morning that if there's those things in our lives that have gotten in the way, that you would make it evidently clear, and if necessary, remove those things that we desire so much in this world, so that we can put our efforts forth to the kingdom. We ask it in Jesus' name. Thanks again to our music team for all that they put in for us and help us. 
And uh, this morning, if you're visiting with us, we're in the book of Hebrews. If you would turn with me, we're picking back up where it seems like to me ages ago we left off. And uh, I want to say thanks to everyone who pitched in and helped and uh, preached while I was out and about. And I was here, but it was nice uh, for a time to have Phil go ahead and preach and uh, to have Nick preach and fill in. What a blessing uh, to have those that are willing to help fill in. But I want to bring you back to Hebrews, where we're learning about the importance of our relationship with Jesus Christ, where we're learning about the importance of a true commitment and faith in Jesus Christ. We're living in a world today where the writer of Hebrews makes it obviously here, where he picks up this rest for God's people, as some Bibles would say, but it's actually in two parts. Before we get to the rest that all of us have, we have to have what it takes to get to the rest. And for many of us, we're living in a world today that the author, clear back in the time of Hebrews, begins to question about what's going to happen to all those people who don't seem to be ready. This morning, I want to challenge you, not because I'm here to question your faith, but I'm here to give you what Gerald Borchardt many years ago as a professor in the seminaries wrote a book on Hebrews titled Assurance and Warning. The book of Hebrews is a sermon. It's a sermon that brings assurance to those of us who are saved, but it's also a book that brings a warning to those of us to make sure we're saved. Because there are so many of us who the writer of Hebrews now begins, as he's comparing Jesus to everyone else, to say to those people, where is your faith this morning? I want to challenge you this morning about your confidence in Christ. Just who really changes your life. Now, I could begin the sermon by saying we all have that special person in our life, and we've all heard the testimonies. I could chime in when we said, oh, how my wife has changed me. Well, that's not true of my life. I've changed her. <laughs> Probably for the worse, but I've changed her. Now, we all have that person that would say, well, until I met her, my life was so different, and she changed me. Or you have someone that you've worked with, someone that's become a counterpart in prayer for you, and your job may not have always gone well, and you're ready to quit and move on, but this person reveals themselves to you and shares their testimony, and they've changed you. And folks, the truth of it is, it's not them that changes you. Any change that's been brought about in your life that doesn't come from Christ will not bring permanent change to your life will not bring the necessary change that you need in order to spend eternity with the Father. It's great to have good examples. It's great to have good Christian encouragement. But let me tell you the whole summary of the sermon. If you want to leave early, you can. If there's no change, there's been no conversion. And if there's no conversion, there's no commitment. And if there's no commitment, then you're not a part of the Great Commission. In a nutshell this morning, the writer of Hebrews says to us, are you a part of the Great Commission? Are you among those that are being brought into the presence by the Holy Spirit to God? Here, the author of Hebrews writes to us. Let me begin in chapter 3, verse 7. We're not doing the whole section, which would go through the middle of chapter 4. I'll stop halfway through. But listen before I give you any more summary to what he writes with his concern for the Hebrews. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works their 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked that generation and said they always go astray in their heart they have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest it's funny he didn't say the land take care brothers lest there be any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, 
Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter. And he gives us the underlying problem of all the sin because of unbelief. This morning, I challenge you as we go forward about your belief. Because we're living in a world today where it's alarming how many people profess to know Jesus Christ and then have departed from it. It's an alarming rate, not even within the people in the pews, but folks, even in ministry, even in the ordained offices of the church. We have those who have claimed a profession in Jesus Christ at some point now deny it, turn away, and have renounced it and are now living a life that all of us would be ashamed of. The writer is asking the same questions that we would ask. How is that possible for someone to lose their faith? But that's not what he's answering. What he's talking about is the confidence that we have in Christ from the beginning if it was real. We all know throughout many of the scriptures that we have throughout the Gospels the importance of understanding the perseverance of the saints. Now we have said this before and I apologize. The term sounds harsh but it's true. Once you're saved, you're what? Always saved. Man, that's a harsh phrase because so many people for years would say, well, that means I can go live like I want and I can still be saved. Well, if you think that's true, then you're probably not what? Saved. Yeah, go get them. You're ready to get that one fast. But we live in a world of perseverance. It's where we don't really know a person's heart. I love you and I care for you and I trust what you tell me and you claim to have a relationship with Christ and we admit you to the body of the church and you're part of our communion and we want you to go forward and serve us and some of you can lead us and take us in directions we need to go. But I don't know your heart, truly. There's only two people in the world that truly know your heart. Do you know who that is? It's you and the Father. Where are you this morning in your relationship between you and the Father? Oh, I'm not talking about your relationship with me or your relationship with the church or where you're serving. Take a moment and ask yourself, am I under the assurance or the warning? Am I being told these things and I'm finding my assurance is grounded in Christ? Or am I finding a warning today thinking maybe I'm really not where I should be? That's what the writer of Hebrews is doing to these listeners. Because how do we determine a true disciple? John 8, 39 makes it clear. You can write that out and keep it. That Jesus says, I will lose none that the Father has given me. And I will raise them up when? Do you remember when he said that? On the last day. So I'm not sure what it means to you to be saved once and for all. But I will tell you this. I think the whole debate on whether or not someone can be saved and lose it or not is answered in the easiest verse of the Bible of John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have what? Eternal life. Now, I don't know about you, but as a math person, I love infinity. That's a big numerical number, and I wish I had that much money. But what blows my mind is the concept of eternal. It goes beyond numerical goes beyond what we can fathom, goes beyond what we can count, even goes beyond going just forward. It even includes going what? Backward. So I don't know about you, but when Jesus promised that when you confess him with your mouth and believe in your heart that he is risen from the dead, that you shall be saved and that you shall have eternal life, it's hard for me not to be convinced that how long will that last? Forever. If you're here this morning and you belong to Jesus Christ, I'm not here to convince you that you're lost. I'm here to give you assurance that you should be living as a child of God. But if you're not a child of God, I'm here to give you a warning. Eternity is a very long time to be without the Father and in His presence. 
Because as the writer begins to tell us, so many of us have fallen short of the promises of God due to our unbelief, our lack of trust. We belong to a community. Let's just put it this way. We belong to the church. We've been delivered from all kinds of circumstances in our life. We've put the fleece out there. We've tested God in his presence. Lord, if you just get me through this sickness, if you just bring them home from the hospital, if you just make sure their marriage stays together, if you just help them overcome the sin, if you would just help them as they go, Lord, if you'll just do that, then I'll do this. And you think that because in the providence of God's will, he did those things, that he did them for you. You must be a child of God. Well, I will tell you this. There's a lot of people sitting in the pews of the church, as Billy Graham shared years ago, that said one of the greatest harvest fields we have are not outside the walls of the buildings of the churches, but inside. Because too many people believe that just because I'm a part of the community, I'm spending eternity with the Father. And some of them even believe that just because my life is going well and it seems that my prayers are being answered, we ask you, who are you praying to? If you don't have a relationship with the Father, just who are you praying to? Is it by chance? Or would you say it's by the general providential care and grace of God that things are happening? You see, the assurance and warning takes all of us back to the point where do we know that we're a disciple of Christ? Or, as the writer tells us, too many hearts have been hardened. He actually uses this word about his children in the desert, or not his children, the Israelite children in the desert. He said, do not be like those in the days of rebellion. Rebellion. To be in unbelief and to be living your own life and to not be a child of God and to not be living in accordance with his word and to not be submissive to what he has called you to be is disobedience. And whether you realize it or not, you're seen as living in rebellion to God. That's why there's enmity. That's why there's frustration. That's why one moment you can thank God for all that you have, and the next moment you want to curse him because you didn't get what you wanted. Because that's not a proper relationship. That's just everything about you. As long as you get what you want and can have it the way you want it, you're happy with God. It almost goes like this. As long as God does what you want and when you want it, you're happy to let him be your God. More importantly, sometimes we even say it like this. I'm happy that I can even be your child. We'll just bless God and we'll be his children as long as he does what we want. You might think that sounds crazy, but parents, let me pick on my life, not yours. But if you're raising children, let me give you a bit of warning. How many of you know children don't always do what you want? Children are still raising me. But we're living in a generation and when many of us make choices that change our lives because of what our children want. We start making decisions because it's what make our children happy. It's what they like. It's what their friends do. It's where they seem to fit. It's where they want to go. So much so that all of us fall into the same trap. We've all been there. I just want to go to a church where my children are happy. I want to go to a church where my children belong. I would ask you to be careful because we have a lot of churches where people feel they belong. And yet there's no standard to hold them accountable to whom they must really belong. Oh, yes, we want to raise our kids. We want to guide them right. And we do want to do the things for them that can make them happy and blessed. But more importantly, we better be making decisions that they realize who the parent is. No different than God wants to make decisions so that we know who our Heavenly Father is. Let me put it this way. Just who really is the head of your family? One writer put it this way. Does the dog wag the tail or what? The tail wag the dog. See, you all know theology from that perspective. 
the practical way of living. So let's get into the truth of it because today is the day of salvation. Even Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, as long as the day is today, as long as the word can be said today, this is the day that matters. We don't know what the future holds. We can't go back and change the past. But we have today. Today is the day to make the decision. Today is the day to make sure it's right. Today is the day to set it forth. Paul even writes it in 2 Corinthians 6. Today is the day of salvation. For I say it gently and carefully, but for those who have departed this world without having a relationship with God, there is no more todays. There is no proof anywhere in Scripture that there is a time after this world that you have an opportunity to be changed. It must happen today. Oh, I'm not here to scare you. I've shared the story many times. I'll summarize it. In the Dallas newspaper, as a man was moving his family to the Dallas-Fort Worth area, he chose to put his family on a plane. He drove the van. The story was in the USA Today article, clear back in the late 80s and early 90s, for those of you who understand those days. But it was a remarkable story in a secular newspaper about the sadness and the tragedy of a man's family whose wife begged her husband to commit to Jesus Christ. He had recognized his sin. He had done things that had hurt the marriage. They were relocating in hopes that the change of place would bring a change of environment that would bring a change to their family. She said, the only change we need is Christ. You need to have Christ. And he said this, well, then I'll tell you what, when we get to Texas, I'll make the change. So he boarded his family on a plane. And as they drove or flew to Texas, he drove the van. He would go straight to the airport in the van. He would park it there. He would locate his family and they would get together and go on from there. She could spend the extra time in Dallas doing whatever. So her plane landed, got the phone call, and everything was good. But as he drove to the airport, late 80s, the plane came in early, if you've ever flown to the Dallas airport. And as it came over what we call spaghetti junctions in the highways, a plane lowered its gear too early and clipped the top of a moving truck, which sent that truck rolling off the highways into the ditches and killed the driver. Who just so happened to be who? Her husband. The tragedy was that a plane actually landed too early and clipped a vehicle and killed this person and left a family with children all by themselves. At least that's what the paper said. When interviewed, the wife said this, I'm paraphrasing and summarizing. The true tragedy was that my husband didn't take advantage of the day he had to give his heart to Jesus Christ. Man, I'm not here to scare you, but I am here to tell you that I cannot promise you this afternoon. I cannot promise you safety on the way home. I cannot promise you that your children won't choke on candy, that they won't have an accident, that something won't take place, or that the time is just set in stone, as we all know, that today is the day. The writer of Hebrews simply says, today is the day. And why is that important? Let me take you on the journey. Why? We need to be warned because for so many there's no change. Write that down. It begins there in verse 7 as we see it, as he begins to use in quotes from 95 of Psalm. It's actually a call to worship if you've never read it before. What a wonderful psalm. But he actually goes back and quotes the part that is important to us. He wants us to realize that he's referring to a time in the desert and when the people were preparing to go into the promised land, that they began to test God for things and his presence. It is there that the place was named Meribah, which, as you many have known and studied, means strife. It was also named Massah, if you want, for testing. It was given those names because it was there that the people began to test God about why they were experiencing what they were experiencing in this life and why his presence wasn't there to give them what they wanted. Maybe you're here this morning going through the same thing that there's a point in your life 
in which you're demanding God to make his presence known. You're demanding that God do things as to why he's led you to this point in your life. The problem that we find out here in the text, listen to what he says. Hardened their hearts in the day of rebellion and testing, where they put me to the test, saw my works for 40 years. Folks, it wasn't just one day. God had done so many things for them over 40 years of time. The problem was with their hearts. The problem was what was inside. There had been no change. There had been nothing happened that made them different in the wilderness journey. You see, sin never gives us an advertisement of what's coming. The people had 40 years, but they filled it with complaining, with all kinds of arguments and frustrations and things they're lacking, even some of them wanting to go back and return to the life they had under the captivity in Egypt. Oh, sin doesn't advertise its consequences. Sin never shows up and says, hey, don't worry about it, just one little kiss. I know this would one day ruin your marriage, tear apart your family, leave your kids asunder. Most of them will end up in homes separated from each other, but it's only one. They don't tell you that. What sin simply says, but if you're not happy, there's many other fish in the sea. Just try it one time. Sin doesn't advertise that just one drink changes your ability to be coherent. It changes your attitude, your actions on how you treat other people. It affects your response time. It affects, affects your thinking. Sin doesn't come to you and say, hey, look, it's one drink that leads to all these issues that are going to now bring an addiction to your life and a change that's going to destroy you. It doesn't say that. It just simply says, hey, but doesn't it taste good on the way down? You can handle it. Oh, just how much can you handle? You see, they had 40 years of seeing what God had done to them. Ultimately, it wasn't them testing God. The truth of it is, there at Meribah, it was God testing the people. Did you know that? That God's the one that's testing us? We're not living in this world to test God. We're not in this world to prove that God exists. We're not in this world to prove that God is merciful and gracious. Those are all things that we know are true revealed to us in Scripture. God doesn't have to prove himself. This life is not about proving God. It's about proving us. It's not about testing God in him. It's about testing us. Listen to what it says in Deuteronomy. It's an amazing verse. You can go back and read this little section. Listen to what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 8. The whole commandment that I command to you today that you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. Now listen to this. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandment or not. They looked at the 40 years of God trying to test to prove whether he could be their God. And what he did, they didn't realize, but for 40 years he put up with them. For 40 years he gave them opportunity to show what was in their heart. To show who they truly belonged to. To show who they would trust in. Took them out of Egypt. Crossed the Red Sea, fed them with manna, water from a rock, healed from snake bites, you name it. He gave them so many opportunities. And there was still no change. The hardness of a heart. Maybe you need a wilderness experience. The Essenes did the same thing. We all know about the Sadducees and Pharisees. We've also learned of a group called the Essenes who were more of a nomadic, out-desert type people. They truly believed that they could start a commune out into the desert place where they could escape the ways of the world, the dangers of society, the evils of what was going on in the cities, and they could go to the wilderness to be free from that. Oh, I remind you of one important truth. You can flee the city, but you can't flee from yourself. You're going to take every problem, every bad attitude, and every circumstance inside right with you wherever you go. Oh, let me give you the old adage, you can't run from your problems. Because the problem's not outside of you. The problem here is that the writer of Hebrews is saying the problem is inside you. It's with your heart. 
I gave you 40 years. How many years has God given you? Have you looked at only the hard times that have gone on, the times in which God has failed you, didn't work out the way you wanted it, the things with your spouse didn't turn out, the things with your children didn't turn out, the things with your career didn't turn out, the things with your church didn't turn out, with your pastor they didn't turn out, with your own family, your parents, folks, do you remember all the things that just didn't work out? God, where are you in all this? Or have you spent those years realizing this isn't a test of God's presence. Just how many times through those years did you realize this was actually a test of your heart and where you are with God, not where God is with you? Oh, sin is deceiving. Changes the whole story. The truth is there's just no change. And there needed to be, folks. Moses preached the gospel. Do you realize that? We live in a generation today where people say all the time, well, no, it's not about the gospel. I mean, the Old Testament was different. It was all about the law. There's no gospel there. That's not true. The gospel was made as clear as it could be made when there was no Messiah yet. The gospel was the foreshadowing in the Old Testament to come of what Jesus would be. There's so much that we can share here. Listen to Moses' message and tell me if you hear the gospel. I'll read it straight from the book of Exodus, okay? Exodus chapter 6. Listen to this. God says to Moses, Say therefore to the people this, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from the slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God. Verse 8 says, I will bring you to the land that I swore to give Abraham. Do you not hear a gospel message? Do you not hear the part where we're being brought out from under our burdens? Where we're being delivered from the slavery in which we existed? That we are being redeemed with outstretched arms? And that he will take us to be his people? And more importantly, he will be our what? Our God. Folks, let's not say the Israelites didn't have a chance to respond. They had an invitation to a gospel message to God himself. God made himself known to them. The problem of it is, we too need to understand that when we've been delivered, we belong to him. We are his people. But he is the God. Our God. Oh, it's hard to understand why. Because when there's no change, there's no conversion. What do we find out? Listen to what he goes on to say in the verses. There's absolutely no conversion for these people as well. You can look at Hebrews, what he's writing in verses 10 and following. He's quoting the same thing, the same people and where they've been through. He simply reminds us that there's been no change, which means there's no conversion for 40 years of seeing God's work. Let me give it this way to you. Listen to how he writes it. I swore in my wrath that they would not enter my rest. Why? Look at verse 10. They always go astray in their hearts. Forget their actions. Just know their hearts. For what comes from the mouth comes from the what? The heart. It's the heart that's evil. It's the heart that has the unbelief. It's the heart that has been hardened. So many people have been delivered. But let me just give it to you this way. For the many people that were set free, some of them never truly escaped. And today we live in the same time where you're here this morning and some of you may have been set free, but you haven't truly escaped. You're still under the power of sin. You've never become one of God's children and he's never truly been your God he's only there when you need him you only come when things are mess you see too many people believe that salvation is all about freedom and only freedom we live in a world today where it's all about freedom we even fight for our freedom we want to keep our freedom we're upset with anything that challenges our freedom 
Folks, we don't serve to keep our freedom. We serve to keep our faithfulness. It's not just about your freedom. Keep this in mind that when you were set free, Paul makes it clear that I am now a slave to who? Christ. We are never set free in the Christian life to do what we want to do, to experience what we want to experience, and to enjoy the things that are self-pleasureful, hedonistic. That's not what freedom we have been set free for. Paul even writes us and says we have been set free to serve Christ, to become slaves to him, slaves to righteousness. We still have a master. Let me ask you this morning briefly, just who's your master? Oh, when they fought over the powers of the earth and the powers of the kingdoms and the powers of money, the Bible made it clear when he said you can't have two masters. You cannot serve both God and what? But yet we live in a world where every decision we make is not about politics. It's about profit. Just who's going to make the most money off of this? Oh, be careful. There's no conversion. The root of all the problems. Look what it says. It says deep distrust. It's falling away. The Greek word that is used here, apostasy, is the same word that is used throughout for apostasy. It's not the drifting as we had earlier. This is not a slow little drift. This is the word that says you have truly apostatized. You have defamed the one, turned your back, walked away, and obviously do not belong to what you claim you belong to. Some people just openly show it in their lives. Others don't. It's deeply rooted in a hardened heart. Some have put it this way before. I couldn't tell you the writers. It's been years. I like the phrases. It said this, too many people have become professors of Christ without ever being possessors of Christ. Too many professors of Christ without ever possessing Christ. Oh, let me give you the modern day adage that goes with that. Do as I say, not as I do. What a wonderful way to teach someone, right? I mean, I'm not going to do it, and I'm not going to obey it, and I'm not going to succumb to it, and I'm not going to change my life for it. But I think it would be good if you would do it. That's what you're supposed to do. But I'm not going to do it. But that's okay. Do as I what? Say. Not as I do. James 2.14 has a powerful passage of scripture that you should probably know. I'll paraphrase it. Those of you going through James last time, men, you should know this. James writes a whole paraphrase, paragraph, we have it, a whole section on faith and works. 2.14 simply says it's important that you understand the Greek that is put into the context because it's the Greek word lego, which means to speak or to say something. James 2.14 says this, what good is it if someone says they have faith and have no what? works. What good is that faith? Now, that's a reference back to legeo, to words you speak. What he's saying is this. What good is it if you have a say-so faith? The one who says they have faith. You can say anything you want. Doesn't mean it's true. I've shared with you before, my roommate in seminary many times used to say things. He wouldn't come out and say, you're lying, or that's not true. You could tell him a story, or you could tell him how something happened, and he would just simply look at you, and Phil would say this. You can say that if you want. That was a polite way of saying, I have no idea what you're talking about, and that is not what happened. But if it makes you feel better, you can say that. Sometimes we look at people and we realize they have a say-so faith. They say they have faith. That's the intentions of the writing. Is the faith in which they say they have something that they don't have. How do we know? Because the obedience, the actions, or the fruit... The works that never show up. That's what's called a say-so faith. That's the one who may profess, but not possess. And so the writer begins to say when there's no change, there's no conversion. As sin deceives us and we get harder and harder in this, deeper and deeper in darkness, the circumstances that needed to be changed were not around them, but within them. This morning I challenge you, Stop praying for the things around you to change. Stop praying for the people around you to change. Stop change. everything else that needs to change from your perspective. 
Maybe the truth of it is you need to start where? In my heart. It's deceitful above all things. It's wicked. And I believe what other people say rather than what God says. I've listened to what others have told me rather than what the Holy Spirit has shown me. And now I want everybody else to change in the way I think it should be done. And maybe it's your heart. It's never been circumcised. Cut away, cleansed, and made right. When there's no change, there's no conversion, which means there's no commitment. There's no commitment. You can jump down to verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt? Man, you talk about frustration. Jerry, Jesus showed up. He was going to judge the churches. He's going to come down and just go ahead and do it now so we can all know the truth. How frustrating it would be if Jesus showed up at this church and not one of us made it to rest. For 25 years, this church has existed. It was planted in an area to reach people and to share the gospel and to further the faith so that we could demonstrate what God has done for us and how we could go out and change lives and uh, demonstrate that for others. How frustrating it would be if not one of us, except me and Nick, <laughs> Joshua and Caleb, I'm not going to tell you which one I am. Wouldn't that be frustrating? The whole generation, not one of them, entered the rest. I hope you understand the analogy that we're given because the rest wasn't just the land. Today we're told that that same is for us, that we enter the rest. The rest in Jesus Christ for eternity, the place promised for us. But if there's no change, there's no conversion, and I'm telling you there will be no commitment. And how do you get people to do something when there's no commitment? How do you get your children when there's no commitment? Your spouse, no commitment. Your church, there's no commitment. The writer asks us, well, if there's no commitment, there may not be any conversion and there won't be any conversion if there is yet to be a change of heart assurance for those of you who have commitment there's been a change there's been conversion warning maybe if you're lacking that commitment it's because there's truly never been conversion because there's never been a change of heart. Oh, he begins to challenge us, this unbelieving rebellion. Do not obey. It's a word that is often used in Scripture. Let me give you a bit. I'll let you do the study. I won't keep you forever. This phrase that is used, they did not obey, they disobeyed, is used many times in Scripture. It is never used with God's children. Never in Scripture used with God's children. This phrase you could even go to 1 Peter if you want real quick. For those of you studying through Peter, you'll get that when you get to chapter 4, verse 17. For it is the time of judgment to begin with the household of God. That's us. And if it begins with that, with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? You cannot claim to be a Christian and live in disobedience. Jesus even said, you cannot be my disciple if you don't what? Obey me. Now, I'm not, please do not leave today and say, well, Pastor Jerry, he preached one of those sermons that we got to work our way into heaven. That is not true. We are saved by grace. We are saved by a gift from God. But we're living in a generation in which all of us are saved. We all have God's gift. We've all been set free. We all live like we want. And none of us are obeying the scriptures. The writer of Hebrews simply says, that's not commitment. That's a sign of no conversion. And that could mean there's never been a change. And so he tells us the root is unbelief. 
Listen to why he writes it, verse 19. So we see that they were unable. Do you get that? They were unable. I could go back to Genesis real quick, and if you remember the story of Adam and Eve and how they were convinced of sin to do things they shouldn't, and they disobeyed, and they lost the ability to please God. Do you remember that in theology? Do you remember what really happened to Adam? Is he was created with the ability to please God and the liberty to please God. He was given the freedom to live within the garden and to use that liberty to please God. And he was given the ability to know the righteousness of God, to know he was created in the image of God, and he could use his liberty to please God. But when sin entered in, he did not lose his liberty. He lost his what? Ability. He was no longer able to please God and to do what was necessary to spend eternity with the Father. Here, he tells us they were simply not able. They did not have what they needed to have to enter the land. This wasn't about God. This was about their hearts. Do you have what is necessary to enter God's rest. Oh, it's not just about Jerry wanting you to do things. Obedience is the sign of the fruit. Matthew says it. Luke says it. If you want to follow Christ, you must pick up your cross daily and what? Follow me. You must take upon my yoke it's light, but there's no way, and don't you ever be convinced that there's a way, that you can live this life 40 years in watching God work and your heart not be changed, never experience conversion, have no commitment, and think that you're a part of the Great Commission. Oh, we're finally warned in the middle of all this that we are partners with Christ. Then exhort one another as long as it today that we may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We come to share in Christ, to become partakers of. As he partook of the flesh, so we are to partake of Christ to be in union, to be one, and to be united. It's the only way you'll be changed. It's the only way to experience conversion. Not one that is about an emotional decision. Not one that is about a great event. But one that is about a changed heart. When there is a change, there is conversion. When there's conversion, there'll be commitment. And when there's commitment, we see the benefits of the Great Commission. Are you experiencing the benefits of the Great Commission? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you've given us a Christian community, that you've placed us in the body to help safeguard us, that we would realize church is not just about coming to tithe. It's not just about coming to sing. It's about coming to be with one another. That today is the day we need to be encouraged. Today is the day we need to find strength. Today is the day that we help one another. Father, help us be convicted, the truth, to be committed to the teaching. That if we want individuals to be concerned with our community, Lord, help us to be a community that's concerned about the individual. That we would not rest until hearts have been aware of the change. Lord, we have so much more today than the Hebrews had. We have an entire crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, an advocate with the Father. How could we not grip our faith? with the commitment we had to begin with.
wherever we're wavering, wherever we're struggling, wherever we're doubting. Father, bring us back to the strength of our commitment. Our commitment to you, the one who changed us and accepted us. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. We receive the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And God's children said, Amen. Amen. Have a great Lord's Day.